This afternoon I preach you the gospel, as you summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 33, about true repentance. And it is for these reasons that we will read first a passage from the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 33. I will read the verses 1 to 20. Two Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not no more remove the food of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I commanded them in all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. But as he let Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Then, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterwards, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gion in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried around Ophel, and raised it to a very great high. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. 
And he restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sins and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and sat up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his father, and they buried him in his house. And Amon, his son, reigned in his place. Let's then also turn to what we confess in Lord's Day 33. You can read it on page 549 and 550 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 33. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartful sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartful joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those who are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. In response to the gospel, we will sing as our Amen song, Psalm 128, verse 1 and 3. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I remember talking with some parents about the marriage plans of their daughter. These parents really liked the soon-to-be groom. Is he a believer? I innocently asked. My question was greeted with silence. Then they rushed to tell me all his positive qualities. He had a pleasant personality, an excellent job. He was handsome, polite, and to settle the matter, he was a good person. 
There was a widowed sister. She was desperately lonely and bitter towards God for taking her husband. She admitted, yes, her husband never went to church. He did not read the Bible or pray. But she said he was such a good man. Why did God take him? And do you remember the boy who shot and killed a police officer? Shortly after the shooting, his mother was quoted as saying her son was such a good boy. I'm sure that if you were asked most of our unbelieving neighbors, they would describe themselves as being good people. It seems that in society at large, being good is more desirable than being a believer because for many people, too many people, being a believer has a negative overtones of being narrow-minded, backwards, and unable to have fun. If, of course, I don't know about you, but every time I hear someone called a good person, I become a little bit cynical and suspect they are not believers. And there is a reason, of course, that I'm suspicious about that word, good. You know what the Bible says. None is righteous, no, not one. No understand, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. And remember what the Catechism says in question answer 8. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? And the answer, yes. Scripture tells us that we are unable to do any good. And the Bible's message is that we are naturally inclined towards all evil. And yet, in question answer 90, the Catechism tells us there, there are some people on this world, earth who have a delight to live according to the will of God. These people are true believers. And you wonder what has happened. How come believers have been transformed from people whose natural disposition was to hate and do evil to people whose natural disposition now is to love and do good? What has brought about this wonderful transformation? Well, question answer 8 tells us what has happened. Very simple. God's true children delight to do good because they are regenerated by the Spirit of God. By God's grace, new life has to be planted in their hearts. 
And says the Catechism, those believers are people who cultivate that new life by repentance or conversion. God's true children are people who make a U-turn because, thanks to God's grace, they realize they are headed down the wrong road. So by the help of God, they change the direction of their life. They put their old self of sin and put on their new self, which rejoices in God and delights to live according to the will of God in all good works. And therefore, this afternoon, I may summarize God's word as follows, as we confess it in Lord's Day 33. God's thankful children live in true repentance. And we'll see three aspects of this. God's thankful children acknowledge the necessity of repentance. God's thankful children accept the possibility of repentance. And God's thankful children show fruits of repentance. God's thankful children live in true repentance. They acknowledge the necessity of repentance. They accept the possibility of repentance. And they show the fruits of repentance. Brothers and sisters, I had read about leprosy but never seen a leper. And I wasn't really prepared for what I saw. I was in India, and there was a leprosarium. And they took me inside to show. We went through the gate and got into the interior of the compound. I saw stamps instead of hands. I saw clamps instead of fingers. I saw half faces. I saw one ear instead of two. I saw dregs of humanity unable even to greet us as visitors. I saw in the faces of men, women, and even some teenagers an anguish crying out. We could be nice to them, but we couldn't cleanse them of their disease. In Scripture, leprosy is a picture of sin. And in the end, it kills people. We heard that in Lord's Day 32, all who are attacked by sin and who continue their ungrateful and unrepentant walk of life, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And we see it happening to God's people during the reign of King Manasseh. It is a real horror. By his sinful reign, the king, whom God appointed to be a shepherd to his people, the king prepares himself and the people for God's judgment. Neither his own repentance nor the reformation of his grandchild, King Josiah, could prevent the eventual exile of the people. What does King Manasseh do? That becomes clear when we first take note of his pious father, Hezekiah. Manasseh's reign stands in stark contrast to that of his father. 
Hezekiah did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. And Hezekiah sought the Lord with all his heart. God, in his judgment, regarded Hezekiah as unique. Before and after, there were no kings like him. He was like his father David. He banished all the idols. He also broke down the high places, the high places devoted to idol worship and the high places erected for the self-styled worship of the Lord. And he made a thorough job of it. That is why Hezekiah's kingship prospered. The kingdom of Judah stood high, protected on all sides. Then came Manasseh. Very deliberately, he sets out to destroy the achievements of his father. He revived and added to the evils of his grandfather Ahaz. He rebuilt the high places which his father Hezekiah had broken down. He worshipped and served the sun, moon, and stars. He even built altars for the host of heaven in the house of the Lord. Idol worship became the state religion. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Besides, he practiced soothsaying, witchcraft, and sorcery. He filled his days with abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out. And he even placed an image of the naked Asherah in the Holy of Holiest. Manasseh acted like an adulteress who leads her friends into the bed of her husband. And there is no escaping the conclusion. Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit greater sins than the nations which God had destroyed before Israel. It couldn't be worse. And that is why God regards the measure as full. The Lord is preparing to leave his people. Though he still speaks to Manasseh and to the people, they pay no attention. And from the book Two Kings, we learn that the Lord said as a last appeal to the people, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria at the plump line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight, and I have provoked me, and it has provoked me to anger." since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. But despite this admonition and call of the Lord to repent, they do not listen to the word of the Lord. Manasseh doesn't listen, nor do the people. They do not want to listen. They simply continue to go their own way. Such is the evil nature of man when he abandons God, and then God abandons man. Manasseh seals his rebellion against God by shedding much innocent blood in Jerusalem. 
And then God acts. He directs the captains of the army of the kings of Assyria against Manasseh. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him up off to Babylon. That is how man's desires come to fruition. Manasseh wanted to be free. He wanted to do his own things and serve the gods of Asher. That is how he thought to prosper. That is how the people would be blessed, he thought. And now Manasseh is bound because of his sin. He experiences so-called blessings from his Assyrian idols. The Assyrian army captured Manasseh. He is caught in their stranglehold. For Manasseh and Judah, their sin spells the end. Those who persevere in their godless and unthankful life are left to perish. Only those who repent and return to God are saved. Do you now understand the necessity of repentance? The necessity of returning to God? To show your thankfulness? Well, let us consider what is repentance. On the one hand, it is the dying of the old nature. True sorrow that we grieve God by our sins. No crocodile tears. Not just grief about the nasty effects of sin, but a contrite heart. Because we again offended and grieved the Lord. And that contrite heart has consequences for our lives. We must hate and free sin for more and more. Flee. That means run away as fast as you can. Leave sin behind you. You know, there are some cattle farms around Mundijong. And every once in a while, a cow wanders off and gets lost. Well, ask a cattle farmer how a cow gets lost. And you will have a big chance, he will reply, well, the cow starts nimbling on a tuft of green grass. And when it finishes... It looks ahead to the next tuft of green grass. And he starts nibbling on that one. And then it nibbles on a tuft of grass right next to the hole of the fence. And then sees another tuft of green grass on the other side of the fence. So it nibbles on that one and then goes on the next tuft. The next thing you know... The cow has nibbled itself into being lost. Well, do you recognize yourself? We are in the process of nibbling our way to being lost. We keep moving from one tuft of activity to another. And before we realize it is too late... For our sins are like tufts of green grass. 
and we even the first bit remains dangerous deadly dangerous brothers and sisters do you want to be saved then turn away from those tufts of green grass on the other side of the fence start running away from sin otherwise your sins will be your doom and that brings us to the second aspect the fact that mankind is in the stranglehold of the serpent is etched deeply into our consciousness hence we have no trouble in understanding the need for conversion to god but is such repentance possible so often i feel utterly powerless to let go of sin so often i'm unwilling but in the catechism we hear the flip side of true conversion we are told it is a heartful joy and a love and delight to live according to the will of god in all good works are you acquainted with that lord joy do you truly desire to live according to the commandments of god when you read this be sure not to skip a couple of important words the catechism reads it is a heartful joy in god through christ and the last two words hold the secret and key to your our joy through christ through christ we have a heartful joy in god and these words in fact take us back to manasseh despite many similarities we also discover an important difference between manasseh's conversion and our conversion for what happens to manasseh we read and when he was in distress and treated the favor of the lord his god and humbled himself greatly before the god of his fathers he prayed to him and god was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to jerusalem into his kingdom when he was in distress well most of us will recognize the circumstances it happens quite often that the consequences of our sins force us on our knees the lord has no pleasure in the death of a sinner but that he turns away his ways and lives god is good for us instead of pushing us away because of our sins he guides us in the way of conversion and in his grace god has pity on manasseh but this is not the main reason why this event is recorded in fact it has no bearing at all we are told the reason why the lord shows mercy towards manasseh the lord brings him back to jerusalem and it is the lord who restores him to the throne Manasseh is to be king in Jerusalem for another seven years. But this is not because of Manasseh. The Lord proves his grace towards the house of David. The Lord is true to his word of promise. Even at the time of judgment, 
The Lord swore to David, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That is why the Lord did not punish Manasseh with the hardening of his heart. For he remembered his covenant with David, and therefore he did not want to foreclose by cutting off his people. By means of grace, God will triumph over sin. In the conversion of Manasseh, God restores the promise and view of the Lord Jesus. He will receive the throne of his father David. His kingship shall be without end. And in the conversion of Manasseh, God is mindful of and is preparing our conversion. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It surely is a heartful joy through Christ. He has brought us back to God. The burden of sin can be heavy. But what counts is this one certainty. My debt is gone. The Lord has made me free. I can say that for God's sake, God is my father. I am his child. The Catechism says, true repentance is a heartful joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. This is the real secret to the dying away of the old nature. This is the real key to overcoming the temptations of the world. You see, the desire for evil diminishes when we find our joy in God and are attracted to doing good. Think of oak trees. Have you ever noticed that oak trees will not let go of some of their old leaves, even when autumn has come and gone? Even when the winds and cold have gone? But in the spring, an old leaf will fall without any wind or blast, simply because a new leaf sprouts. We don't merely overcome evil merely by sorrow, hate, or flight. We overcome evil when we have a taste of joy and a delight in doing good, when we are always out to do God's will according to all good work. It can be very tiresome. The battle against sin is very heavy. Sometimes we nearly go under. We threaten to buckle beneath the burden of sin. But praise be to God. In Christ, we are able to persevere. We can continue to fight sin in our lives. The possibility of repentance is anchored in Christ. Through his Holy Spirit, he restores us in his image in order that we may show gratitude for his gracious deeds. That thankfulness is also evident in the struggle against sin as well as in the joy of serving God. And that brings us to the third aspect. Among believers, you always come across types who were called smart alecks. 
People who think that conversion merely serves to gain entry into heaven. These church people think conversion only touches the heart. But it doesn't have much bearing on business and daily walk. And that attitude is a very sad mistake. For it could be very well that such people never gain entry into heaven. Surely you may well clean, claim to be converted, but, adapting the word of James, I will show my conversion in my works. If conversion is not accompanied by deeds, then surely such conversion is worthless. Conversion must be evident by fruits. And this is clearly the case with King Manasseh. He acknowledged that the Lord is God. And then he starts to work. He rebuilt the outside walls of the city of David. And he took away the foreign gods and removed the stone idols from the house of the Lord. He also repaired the altar of the Lord and replaced it in the temple. He offered peace offerings and thanks offering and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. But alas, the people only partly followed him. They continued their self-styled worship and still sacrificed on the high places. God's judgment therefore remained on the people. The Lord showed mercy to Manasseh for his servant David's sake, but his judgment over the people stayed. Too much has happened. And therefore, what did not happen among the Israelites of Manasseh's days, it has to happen with us. Our new nature is evident in our commitment to live according to the will of God in all good works. Well, consider these deeds. The young people took it upon themselves to rake the leaves of a widow in hospital. A young boy returns a wallet he found to its owner. The deacons pay the electricity bill of a single mum. People in town give donations of money and clothing or a family who lost everything in the fire. After the tsunami disaster, people across the country gave millions of dollars to the Red Cross. Are these good deeds? Well, that depends, at the catechism, on the why, the how, and the what. For behind the work lies a motive, a guideline, and a purpose that determines whether or not it can be called good. First of all, the catechism tells us why the why of good works that are truly good. The question is, why did I rake the leaves of the widow in hospital? Why did I return the wallet to its owner? Why did I pay the electricity bill of a single mother? Why do I give money, food or clothing to a needy family? Why do I visit the sick or the lonely? What is the root source of my good deeds? What impulse moved me to do this? 
Well, the Catechism says, for an act of, to be truly good, it must be done out of true faith. A true faith, of course, is one which looks to Jesus Christ, is centered on Jesus Christ, and loves and serves Jesus Christ. For an act to be truly good, it must arise out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. I always think here of Albert Schweitzer, the great theologian, philosopher, musician, a missionary doctor, who worked for 35 years in Cameroon, Africa, establishing a hospital and a leper colony. Millions of Africans had their lives spared or helped as a direct result of his work. Surely, you would say, his deeds can be called good. However, and this is the sad part, Albert Schweitzer did not have a true faith. He did not believe in the Jesus of the gospel. He built a hospital and established a leper colony because of his deep-rooted reverence of life. Yes, Albert Schweitzer did the right thing, a commendable thing, but for the wrong reason. The good he did did not arise out of true faith. Only when we abide in Christ, only when our lives is a living relationship with Christ, only when we have true faith in Christ are our words and deeds and persons acceptable to God. Quite often individuals have selfish and self-centered goals in mind when they do good. Sometimes may give to the worthwhile charity, hoping that they will win the draw for a new kind. Some else may lend a helping hand so that he maintains a good reputation. Another may lend his lawnmower out so that he keeps a good relationship with the neighbor. All of these are legitimate human goals, but do not make a deed good in the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul tells us what makes a deed good in the sight of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If our behavior glorifies God's name, we are doing good. And I know that many in church love to do good. I know of members who visit the elderly and the sick, the mourning and the hurting. I know of many who, being informed of a need, neither dig out their wallet or help out in person. I know of those who bring food when there is an accident or a death or an illness. My brother and sisters, I would like to ask you to take a close look at the good deeds you do. Ask yourself, what is my motive? What is my guideline? What is my purpose? Ask yourself, does it arise out of true faith? Conformed to God's law? And is it done for God's glory?